was in Indianapolis, which is cold in January. The Floridian in me was not as prepared for that as I would have been. But actually, it wasn't that bad, I will say. You know, it's, say, between the 30s and 50s here, depending on the day. And when I first got there, it was actually quite nice. But then by, like, the midpoint of the week, it was low 20s. Mm-hmm. And two observations. One, there is nothing to do outside in Indianapolis in January. <laughs> Why would they? I mean, there was a Jiffy Lube across the street from the hotel. And I'm used to, in Florida, the bay doors are open. It's an invitation for cars to pop in. These were steadily down. Bring it in. Shut the door. <laughs> yeah, shut it. Keep the, keep the heat on. And I had to run to the store at least twice in the low 20s at night. And I was just like, maybe I don't need food. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I got internet, so I yeah. guess I'm good. You know, I was in Indianapolis teaching. And I'm the kind of guy that if I'm doing something, certainly if I'm doing something mindless, but even if I'm just doing something that I want a little noise in the background, even if I'm grading papers or reading, well, maybe not reading, but if I'm doing something work-wise, maybe it's the product of my upbringing or just being a part of the 21st century, a dead quiet room to me just is almost deafening in some senses. So mm-hmm. I always put something on in the background on TV. Mm-hmm. And AMC over the week was running like, I guess it was a 1980s marathon of these awesomely amazing movies in their day that are frankly now somewhat lampooned. What, like, what was the highlight? Well, they played like the Rock, all the Rockies, right, which, right. Were, which were awesome. And I didn't realize actually that the first two Rockies were wildly well received. I mean, the first one won Best Picture. Yes. Yeah. Academy Award. Out of nowhere. Never heard of this guy. Makes Sylvester Stallone, right? Rodin. Wrote and directed and starred in it and everything. And he, yeah, he wrote and direct. He wrote. I don't think he did. He direct. I don't think not. he directed. But I know he wrote the first Rocky screenplay and maybe some of the subsequent ones. Mm-hmm. But he had written and I think was very involved in the John Travolta disco ones, the ones that were like legendary. Okay. There's actually a scene in one of those movies where you see Stallone on the street. He bumps into John Travolta mm-hmm. and he turns his head and looks at the camera. Hmm. So then he writes Rocky. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing and. Everyone loves it at the time. But of course, now all we think about is Rocky IV, a boxing match defeats communism. Right, right. (laughs) You know, it's like, he hits hard. Maybe our political views are entirely bogus. And Superman IV, wasn't that the search for peace? Like, what what was up with saving the world from, I guess, at the time period, Richard Pryor? All the screenwriters just seemed to have gone for like on-the-nose allegory. (laughs) Just like (laughs) straight down the middle. Well, you didn't have Hydra and you didn't have kind of terrorism. In fact, uh, one funny bit back in that time period, uh, Back to the Future, if you watch that one, the terrorists that are sort of create the problem with the van that are coming after the professor, they're total knuckleheads. And it shows how back in the day, terrorists were kind of a joke because you just thought, well, why would you blow yourself up? Like, why would you hijack a plane? Because what are you going to do? We had no concept of today's terrorism. So back then they were like, oh, well, I don't, I don't know what we're doing. Yeah. He he makes a deal to sell plutonium to like a Middle (laughs) Eastern like terror sect. (laughs) It won't be a problem. No, no one's doing that, <laughs> even if he was trying to swindle them. I mean, right, right. you're not writing that plot today. Yeah. But the real standout for, again, it was just on in the background, but I actually found myself watching Top Gun, mm. which is not, you know, a famous movie that I loved. and It's very influential now, I think, so many aspects of it. Yeah, I was eight when it came out, so I, I wouldn't have been able to watch it. I certainly watched it probably in high school or something later. But it was interesting watching it for two reasons, two observations. One, 
it's actually amazing that the movie is a living caricature. Mm-hmm. I mean, every lampoon of these types of movies inevitably goes back to Top Gun. Mm-hmm. Iconic. Yeah, iconic. It's the overblown shots. It's the guy who is literally maverick and figuratively over the top, breaking all the rules. You know, the the angry boss who can't get rid of him because he's the best of the best. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, the soundtrack. I mean... Uh, the masculinity of it, it mm-hmm. it's sort of overblown. Mm-hmm. They're using a locker room or mostly naked playing volleyball or something, <laughs> which is very weird. But this masculinity thing, which was very 80s. The aviator glasses, all that. The leather jacket, the motorcycle. The love of a woman, you yeah, know. Yeah. In Maverick, I didn't remember this as a kid, but the Maverick character has this plot about having lost his father that haunts him. Hmm. And the doubt that's snatched from the clutches at the mm-hmm. end when there's near defeat and suddenly he can pull the shot off. If I just said that abstractly, it sounds like a script for a lampoon of the 1980s. Right. But this is actually the movie. It's, it's a living lampoon of itself, or rather its legacy was so much that it became synonymous with the kind of things that no one would attempt much of today. At least not putting all these things together at the exact same time. So that was one. The second thing is, I didn't realize or at least I realized this time watching it, the movie is just straight Arthurian. Hmm. What do you mean? Well, in the Arthurian tale, it's, of course, the best of the best, the warriors, the knights. And there are different characters with different moral integrities. So there are the people who do it right. There's, there are the kind of pure folks chasing the grail. And then you have Lancelot, who is sort of the maverick. And he falls in love with a woman who he shouldn't fall in love with. All oh, right, okay. And the love of the woman steals him up. So that when he has to go out and fight and do these types of things, he's able to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not on the nose, and I'm not suggesting that they use this, but the themes just jumped off. It's like, here we have this movie that it's aviators, particularly in the 1980s when the mm-hmm. F-14s. They are like knights, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's all about the integrity to beat this, frankly, in the movie, nameless enemy, which in the Arthurian tales... Any enemy they confront is always some. It's like the Russian planes. The characters don't have names. They're just mm-hmm. the epitome of evil. All this kind of stuff. So it's just like, it's so pro-fighting and prowess as a, its central theme. But it's actually only believable as a plot because the main character is flawed. He has a doubt, a crisis, and it takes this love of a woman that he's technically not supposed to be with to make him actually kill the evil one. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting. I mean, I, I never would have saw that as a kid, obviously. And again, I'm really just kind of riffing on this because it just sort of stood out. Once I got past all the jokes that I was that were going on in my head, right? <laughs> I was like, I, I did feel like I was a kid when I. As soon as you hear that song, it's a, it's it's a, it's iconic. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's a yeah. movie bigger than life, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, as, 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 and part of it is, I guess, age, and, and I mean, there really aren't that many new stories. There's, what, 15 basic stories. There's stories of revenge, there's stories of jealousy, there's stories of, of betrayal, and so every story is just a mixture of those stories, and you do start to see patterns, and part of it is when you're teaching, you're always looking for patterns, so it's hard mm-hmm. not to turn that off of thinking, oh, this is like this, and that's like that, but yeah, I was reading the four-year-old Pinocchio, 
just a few hours ago for, to get him down for his nap. He, he insists on calling it Piokino. <laughs> and uh, I think he can't say it right, but now it's become a joke. Like he sort of insists that it's right yeah. as, as, as kids can do. And you shame him. You, you probably shame him. I do. Like, yeah. I spank, he's, he's spanked every time. It's like, <laughs> you will say it right. Uh, but uh, yeah, reading that, I thought, gosh, this is Frankenstein. He creates a creature that then is kind of human-like, but isn't fully human, but wants to be human. And one day you shall be. And that's kind of... You know, the Frankenstein's monster is chasing Dr. Frankenstein, wanting him to make him a, a mate. And yeah, it, it's kind of like, wow, this is a clean kid's version. Well, I guess it's older than Frankenstein. Well, what um, does, yeah, when is Pinocchio written? I, I don't know. I assume it's one of those older sort of stories from the... Oh, I'm looking it up here. 1883. Yeah. Oh, so it's roughly the same time. But I always figured those stories have that older Hans and Gretel background, but I don't know. You know the, the, the subtitle of the original Frankenstein, Shelley's Frankenstein? Yes, A New Adam. Uh, or New Prometheus. New Prometheus. But there's Adam creation stories oh, too, really? right? Well, I mean, there's echoes of that Frankenstein's creating the monster. But right, Prometheus rebelling against the gods. And there's something in the bloodstream in that Victorian Gothic. In the late 1800s, the Enlightenment has pushed technology to the point where they are beginning to believe that they're on the verge of something that's major. Mm-hmm. Even that plot that we're going to stitch some organs back together and use some something that feels like magic, maybe if it was a medieval mythology, mm-hmm. but in this case, it's science. That becomes the driver for this new change. And it, what's very weird is a lot of the literature this time is supernatural in its theme. Mm-hmm. Dracula, Frankenstein. Belief in ghosts and, and the rapping, not the music, but the you know, sitting around a table, seance type rapping. Yeah, and yeah. So they're very into the occult and ghost stories. And yeah, everybody's reading a ghost story. Charles Dickens has got a ghost story. Everybody's doing one. Right. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. I mean, Dickens puts a ghost in the Christmas story. Right, right. <laughs> of yeah. all things. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some sense in which it might be a caricature of some of the Enlightenment arguments, but the idea that we're going to finally get over spiritual themes, supernatural things, even at times that the emotional life, the romantic side of literature was going to kind of fade with the wind of reason and science, that there is a backlash in the pop culture of their day that they say, no, there's, there's actually something viscerally that even if it's a tale, the loss of something beyond this world, you might mm-hmm. say, somehow evacuates meaning. And one of the things when I taught the Tolkien Lewis course, I actually talk a bit about this because we don't really think of Lewis and Tolkien as actually being born into this exact same world. They're born in the late 1800s. So when they get to the early 1900s and they're now lecturers or professors, they're kind of reacting from a literary or cultural standpoint with a lot of the same topics. You know, this idea that in some ways that's such a straitjacket that we can no longer talk about anything besides the physical. And Lewis creates this character, Dr. Weston in the Space Trilogy, Mm -hmm. that is the epitome of what he thinks is horrible. Mm-hmm. This kind of rabid materialist who, in the end, himself sort of succumbs to cultish stuff and voodoo and these types of power plays, you might mm-hmm. say, but using whatever he can to dominate. I can't quite put my mind in that world because it's obviously so far away, but it, it's very compelling. The, I mean, Frankenstein, all this stuff, of course, we think of it as Disney or modern, but it comes out of the Victorian era. And they're building and empires and and 
they're they're creating so much. They're building Parliament and you know the actual building in in London, but they're doing the neo Gothic in their architecture too. They're they're doing churches in in the Gothic sense, so that they are haunted by the medieval period, and yet they're they're building railroads and and telephone and all that kind of stuff is coming out of this time. Yeah, this time in America was always called the Gilded Age, hmm. and I was listening to some lectures on that period for random reasons. It was boring. Just, you're right. It, 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 well, I will say it sounds like, but I do not want to. If I get a, if I get a DeLorean, I'm not going back to that period because <laughs> it's just say so, okay. So there's no medicine. Uh, they don't even have Advil. Right. No painkillers. Yeah, it's just morphine over the counter. Eminem would hate it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but in in the Gilded Age, the historian was making the point that. That phrase, the Gilded Age, comes from Twain. Hmm. I didn't know that. The idea is supposed to be a double meaning. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it's an age where they are gilding everything, making these beautiful architectural works of wonder. But just like a gilded thing, it's very surface, very veneer. Mm-hmm. It's just gold on the outside. On the inside, this is also the, at least in the American context, Civil War, Jim Crow mm-hmm. laws, some really culturally dark moments are happening all during the time of this opulence. Right. And then by the time you get to the World Wars, you get the lost generation, you get the Great Gatsby, which is making fun of this gilded ethos with the flappers and things. And it just, it all kind of comes crashing down. And so anyone born really after the World Wars is at least always said to live in the aftermath of that cynicism, that it's hard to get our mind around that optimism Mm -hmm. that was there before those eras. The excitement of the steam engine, the excitement of... Which I get excited about, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, I mean, this raises the point, though. I mean, obviously, when we're in, you know, high school lit class or even college classes, unless somebody tells us some of these things, if you first read The Great Gatsby, most, most of us would have been in high school. Yeah, that was high school for me. It's just kind of like, okay, neat. Is mm-hmm. there a movie on this? Right. <laughs> this is the sense of, you know, Frankenstein and obviously the vampire world has become just sort of saturated. It's, you know whether it's Twilight, whether it's something else, whether it's Anne Rice, that these things are now common tropes in literature. But just in general, it, it always strikes me that you read a book one way at one point in your life, and it serves a purpose. It's not as if it doesn't. But then later, you come back to it maybe with more mature eyes. Mm-hmm. Not the Top Gun is the epitome of this, but I watch it in my late 30s, and suddenly I'm going, oh, this is different. Like I, I can actually think different thoughts about it. I'm not sure if you have any of those stories, but it's like, how do you read a book if they're always wondering if you're reading it correctly? Right. I remember my high school English teacher saying, because she taught, uh, I think, a class at community college, how different the audience was because those are people that understood poetry because so much of poetry is about loss. And, and most people at that age haven't lost that much. I mean, some have, sadly. That's true. But when you're 16, 17, you're, you don't have a lot of scars yet. And, uh, and I remember her saying that the poem, you know, you keep reading them and they... They mean different things, the same poem. And, and that's part of the richness of literature is you can approach it. And same thing with scripture, that certain passages will mean different things at different points in your life. And you'll have favorite bits of scripture depending on what impacts you at that point. I tell students actually to prove that point or talk about that point. I mentioned the Psalms and I, I point out not just the Psalms in general, but the Psalms that are lamenting. Mm-hmm. They've lost something. And there's this this deep agony that it's crying out to God for. And I say, if you're 14, you read this, it, it might hit you at some point. But then maybe at a later date, we all will experience loss. Mm-hmm. Then you come back to those verses. And it's not that they've changed, 
It's that there's some experiential level that you can apply to it. Again, if you haven't lost a lot, you can at least appreciate that it would be a real tragedy to lose a sibling, a parent, something like this. But then maybe a tragedy happens, you're going, oh, now I get it. And right, this, this right. seems to speak to me in a way that it didn't yeah. before, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. There's been, all, of course, a lot of philosophical talk about reader and the text and stuff. But this is, I think, more basic. This is, as you get older, there ought to be, as you were just saying, a rereading of things mm-hmm. to see what might have not been present to you when you were younger or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, that same English teacher told me, because at one point, reading books, she said, well, you're really supposed to have read this book twice. And I remember feeling deeply frustrated, thinking, come on, man, I did the homework, I read it. But she's right. Any book worth reading is worth reading twice. And certainly in grad school, you read certain books many times. Yeah. Part of it is, I think, especially with nonfiction, is you don't understand the argument that, strangely, the first time through... You don't understand the argument. So the first read is really getting what's the argument. And then you go back through and try to understand the support or what the implications are. Terry Eagleton's Sweet Violence book that's about tragedy, I remember his opening says, this isn't really a book about tragedy or literature. It's a book about politics. And I thought, hmm. that makes no sense. And then I read the <laughs> right. whole book and thought, that makes, I don't, I really don't understand this politics. But well, are you a Democrat or a Republican? I don't get yeah, it. I'm yeah, like, what does this have to do? But about the third time I read it, I thought, he's right. But it took me about a year reading it three mm. times to really say, I see now what you were getting at. But part of it is he's making a complicated argument. But I think that applies to fiction as well. The first time you read, because I think when my high school English teacher said you should read it twice, it was about the heart of darkness. Mm. Joseph Conrad. And first time you read it, you're just trying to get the plot in your head. Mm. And the second time you're picking up on, you know, the things that are unsaid or implied or the connections or you're noticing, oh, this this chapter ended here and then moved to this chapter. And, and mm. so that what's the transition? You're picking up on more subtleties and you can't see the subtleties the first time. Same thing for a movie, too. Yeah, I was about to say, we do this for music and movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if it's a great movie, we'll brag, oh, I went and saw it four times in the theater. Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. But maybe it's just the impatience of our age. Mm-hmm. We're willing to give a couple of hours at most, but a book takes more time. Yes. And I think another factor that I only became aware of probably around the end of seminary, early PhD work, is we tend to read books to say we've read them, or at least that's the allure. Right. So if you're in a, at a dinner party and someone goes, oh, have you read such and such? You don't want to sit there and say, no, uh, mm-hmm. what? You know, what is that? Mm-hmm. But we also want to, I think, quantify what the meaning of the book is. Mm-hmm. So this is where spark notes or crib notes or all those things that can certainly be a help to students can actually be a detriment because you're pre-programmed. It's like Where's Waldo? Mm-hmm. Suddenly you go, oh, there's that theme. Okay, saw that right. theme. Done. And again, back to the Inklings. Lewis has a lot to say on reading, even for escape. He says, escapism is not a bad thing. In fact, he had a great line. He said, the only people that don't like escape are jailers. <laughs> but it's this idea that we don't let the book be something that is as enjoyable or something that we want to get as lost in. As we might say, if we we're big into music or into movies or something else, TV shows. Mm-hmm. And yet, in many ways, the book is written on one level to be that for us. It's supposed to be, I hate to use the word, entertainment. And it's sustained, too, in a way that, you know, a lengthy book is a sustained 
thought experiment in a sense. And and it is harder. You you can kind of watch The Walking Dead or something while you're doing something else. You'll miss things, but it doesn't demand your attention like a book will. Though I, I wonder, with the rise of Audible and audiobooks, mm-hmm. you are more able now. I do this now driving. I have a, about 25, 30-minute commute. And I never listened to books on tape when it was a book or something that I felt like I kind of needed to read to be culturally accepted or something. But I found myself just as I might if I were standing before a book shelf with physical books, going to Audible or something that I use with these apps and saying, all right, what would I read if it were a physical book? What what would I have read on a beach vacation or something? And sometimes it's more avant-garde literature, something that, you know, I'm not up to speed on. Sometimes it's Stephen King, because I'd have this argument that Stephen King is the Mark Twain of our generation. Absolutely. So prolific, and his themes are pretty iconic, and he's lampooned by those who are more elite because he's too popular. But, you know, you give it 100 years after his death, people are going to be probably talking about him in English lit classes. Yeah, they'll be talking about the Shawshank Redemption and Stand By Me, the, the body, yeah. and, he, and, and The Stand. I mean, some of his works are great novels or short stories. Have you ever read Stephen King's On Writing? No, I hear it's great, and I want to, but I've not read it. That book actually saved my PhD. Really? Well, I got writer's block twice. Huh. I was just like, what in the world? And I had no idea. I mean, it's it's a, one, it's a horrible thing <laughs> to be in. I mean, you have a Word document open or something, and you, you know more about what you're about to say than probably anybody else at that exact moment, because it's still fresh. And you type out a sentence and you go, oh, it's hideous. That's stupid. And you delete mm-hmm. it. You just feel locked. So I read that book just kind of as an experiment to say, let me see what his life was like. And I'd say about a third of the book, maybe a quarter of it, is him telling his story, how he was a writer as a young man, you know, his his interests, how he wrote that Carrie was his first book. Yes, first novel. Yeah. Which, by the way, he got, I think, something equivalent to like a $3 million advance after they read it. Wow. <laughs> they, were like, they were like, yes, we want this now. This is going to be amazing. And your next one. Yeah, exactly. But the rest of the book after that piece is him writing. It's not a how-to. It's not a grammar book. It's not a get a chair and sit exactly in this posture and you're going to write books. It's a memoir of the craft is the actual subtitle of the book. And he had this great line. He said, writer's block is just fear. Right. You're afraid someone's not going to like it. And so you're too timid to put it down. And in his lovably colorful way, he said, get some guts and do it. Right. Just put it down. And it, that snapped something in me. I said, you know, you're right. I'm fearful that my advisor won't like it, that it won't be publishable, that I'll fail out. So that helped me. So I'm eternally grateful to King for that. But then he goes through essentially this, this idea that it's not a form and a function, that there's not this sense that you're going to set aside this time with the perfect typewriter or some sort of nostalgic approach is going to make this impressionistic imagination work. He just said, I get up every morning and I write, I forget what the number is, like 3,000 words. Yeah, I think it's 3,000. Yeah, and he just said, that's it. And even after he had his van accident or someone hit him walking, yeah. uh, I forget, 15 years ago or so, really terrible. I mean, he was, kind of got run over. He was just out walking and somebody hit him with the car. But even the terrible pain of that, he would be in a wheelchair with, a, I think, a, a board and he would type his 3,000 words. So no matter what, you know, he, he write, it's like if he doesn't write 3,000 words, he, go, he will go crazy. He yeah. turns into the vampire. So, yes, that's right. Uh, uh, you know, and, and that work ethic is astonishing. And he said he almost gave it up, actually, because sitting a long time was hard. Mm-hmm. And he was such a creature of habit. I think the book on writing was the catharsis 
huh. as to recalling what his career has been about. And he does give you a little bit of that sense from a prolific author as to how he comes up with a theme. And he says, in a very interesting way, he doesn't sit down and say, all right, what's going to sell books? What's going to be compelling? I think almost verbatim, he says, what's a believable character? And then what situation would I put them in to reveal hidden flaws, hidden strengths, something about them that wouldn't be on the surface? Hmm. So I don't have to monologue everything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of his early books is Salem's Lot. Mm-hmm. A group of vampires move into a small town. I still remember bits of that story. Yeah. And he just said, let's take small town America Mm -hmm. and let's put something as horrifically dreadful as vampires moving in. And I've read that one book. I haven't read tons of its fiction, but the vampires really aren't in the plot all that much. Mm -hmm. It's the presence of them, the fear of them. You you do see some things, of course, it's Stephen King, but he doesn't have these first person, like, as I get out of my coffin, this kind of thing. Like you don't even really get to see them. Like one of the main characters succumbs and gets bitten and becomes a vampire. Anyway, it's very compelling because he's not trying to necessarily write horror. He just tries to write characters. And what comes out of him is horror genre, that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure other authors would probably say the same thing. I remember from that book, there's one scene where the guy, he's trying to catch someone. And I don't remember who's the bad guy and the good guy, but the stairs to the basement he cuts them off like five steps down. Do you remember this bit? Oh, yeah, He takes yeah. out the lights and then pounds big cleavers into the floor facing up. So basically when you walk down the steps and it's dark and you can't turn the light after like the fifth step, you fall and then you land on a bunch of <laughs> knives. Oh. And I just thought that is, you know, and it's hard for me to go into a dark basement and not occasionally think of that. Like what would happen? And you can think of King sort of thinking, <laughs> what would happen if there weren't steps and knives yeah. at the bottom? But uh, what a scene. I mean, it stuck with me and, and that book was great. And uh, I, my eighth grade, I think it was eighth grade teacher read us some of his short stories at one point, mm. I guess, getting us to think about literature and things. And it was the uh, skeleton crew. And that got me into Stephen King. And I remember reading Pet Cemetery, and I slept with the light on for about two, three weeks. The book <laughs> terrified me as a teenager because, you know, these people are coming back as monsters. And it's all about death. And it's really horrifying. A, a spouse dies and a child dies and, and things coming back wrong. And uh, it really messed with me. The, the movie was not nearly as terrifying as that book. And I had such an awe of his ability to, to really scare me. It sounds, though, like you don't have an elitism to how you approach what you're reading. Yeah. And, and you were saying that everything's entertaining. Yes. I, neither of us likes snobbery, I think is fair to say. Yeah. So, well, all right, let's pitch a scene. You're standing at Barnes & Noble or some bookstore. You're standing in front of a whole shelf of, let's say, literature or something. How do you go about picking something that you might want to read? A new book. Great question. I love covers, to be honest. And this goes back to the comic book store when I was a kid. Back in the day, you would just walk through and just look at the covers and they were 75 cents. And it wasn't a big investment to just buy a comic book because, you know, in the old ones, it even told you about the story on the cover. It sort of had Superman and Lex Luthor and Lex Luthor saying, you can't kill me. I'm the president. And of course you think, (laughs) well, I got to read that one. So, uh, you know. How did it become president? Yeah, exactly. That sounds like a broken system. Yeah. I want to read this. So to be honest, I would look at covers and uh, titles really matter. And then, of course, the back of the book and and then the the description. Yeah. Okay. then you get the book. How do you read it? Do you just find a comfy spot? And what's the bit on Billy? Billy Crystal. uh, Read the last bit first when Harry met Sally in case you die. (laughs) Yeah. Do you do that? No, no, I've never done that. But I do think about it. You know, if it's fiction, you're just going to have to read it straight through. 
Yeah. I mean, and I tell students this, that you really don't understand the book till you've read the book. For example, teaching church history or something, I can tell them the whole point of the class, which is Christianity is old and diverse and a lot of things happen. I mean, that's really the whole class or theology. Christians have a lot of different ideas about God, but those claims don't make sense if you haven't spent time reading. The theology example, we've all had professors that they say something like that and you just think they're cynical. It's like, Mm -hmm. it just sounds like the guy's just going, "Uh, you know, people be arguing, like no big deal. (laughs) But yeah, the first thing you have to say with Christian theology is, wow, there are Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox, and you can have your position and you can point to the majority and you can point to what is mainstream, but even the mainstream is, is there's disagreement, which doesn't mean it's all relative, but you do have to recognize that there is a discussion going on within the tradition. That's what I say the, the role of a church history class, at least in mm. a seminary or university setting, is for. Mm-hmm. It's not the stories, it's not the dates. You could Google the dates of when Constantine lived. Right, right. But you need to know that somebody changed some of the direction as to how we practice certain things related to the world around us. The, the christening dumb, uh, the Christendom-ing, I guess might be the word. The students never get that Christendom. I'm like, no, it's Christendom. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why, but <laughs> it's got an E yeah. in there. Yeah. <laughs> Part of what they're learning is, okay, some groups split over what you might call essential issues. You have radically different views on all kinds of things. You could think of Catholics and Protestants maybe on that. Or there are times that people are just, hey, we're going to go our own way. Mm -hmm. You know, Lutherans and Anglicans or something. Right. And we can say those statements, but till you really get into, uh, you know, the devil's in the details and and the forest and the trees, you've really got to get into the the weeds to understand how this all matters and and how it played out. And, And of course, I hate reductionism. So, you know, they love to say that the Anglican Church was just because Henry VIII wanted divorce, and and I always warn them that that makes me ballistic because right. you know their their forces of reform going. I mean, sure, that's a stimulus to it, but that's not the only thing that Reformation was about. There were sympathizers to the Reformation waiting for that moment to strike to yeah to, to fix the church. I usually spin that back on the the student. I say that's like saying you exist and your meaning and purpose is because a sperm happened to reach an egg. Right, right, right. You don't reduce yourself down to the formal principle that caused it. This is a big lesson for me. Sometimes an accident occurs that actually the result of it is far greater than the accident. Mm-hmm. I mean, Luther's Reformation was he just some guy put a what amounts to a faculty flyer on the bulletin board. <laughs> the Instagram of the day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, you know, he wasn't looking for a fight. And I usually point out, even in the 95 Theses, he defends the Pope and defends good works. Uh It's not a manifesto for what came after. But when I say that in class, there's always one hand that goes up. Not not always, I should say, Mm -hmm. but but often. Why are you saying that it's irrelevant then? And and the answer is no. Sometimes things happen. Things change. That's life. It's complicated. Now, with books, back to books, Mm -hmm. do you have multiples going at one time? Or are you a one at a time guy? I'm more of a one-at-a-time guy, but I have picked up and started yes and no. Okay. I, I prefer one-at-a-time. I've been strangely into more nonfiction recently. I've been almost self-help books. I guess I'm a good Methodist. I was thinking earlier, trying to go on to perfection. Uh, <laughs> you're already there, man. Come, oh, on. Oh, Come you're on. You're so kind. Uh, Tidying Up, Marie Kondo. Have you heard about that book? No. It's a big seller. Uh, she's a Japanese professional organizer and her philosophy behind that. Hmm. And uh, it's a very brief book, but it's very gripping. It's very interesting because she's very um, minimalistic, as, as a lot of people like to be today. 
but it's also non-dualistic. You, re- you really feel like you're seeing another culture. Mm. So for example, she says you should get all your clothes and set them out in you know a space, your bed or bedroom, whatever. Get everything out, everything in storage, everything. And just make the mounds and see what you've got and then touch everything. And if it gives you joy and pleasure, you keep it. And if it doesn't, you thank it for its service in your life and you throw it away or you, or you take it to the consignment shop. And so that's the non-dualistic bit is it's almost like things are alive. You should greet the house and say, hello, house. Uh, <laughs> so you want, you want, I know it, it, it's really strange. You read it and, and sometimes hello, I think it's the translation. Yeah. Uh, it'll say things like she talks about loungewear and you're like, I, I don't know. <laughs> <I'm> not, <laughs> meaning the clothes you wear around the house and you're thinking, I don't know if this is an old UK translation, but I don't know. I was wondering why you're wearing a smoking jacket right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and sweatpants. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it sounds also like when you're reading, you resist the desire to Google it, like as you're doing it, like. Oh, what does that mean? A little bit, but I do like to know the background. And I don't know about you, but I like to know where's this person from? When were they alive? Like that does give you a hint of, of what's yeah. their stuff. And that's one hard thing. When I was in college and, and seminary, grad school, reading Bart, like you, you really do need to, just knowing a little bit about him, you know, like what's his thing? That helps. But you're right that you really have to read him to, to get him. And it's going to take years. You're not going to pick up Bart. You're not going to pick up Baltazar. You're not going to pick up Calvin and Luther, even just from my world. And that's usually one of the problems. I actually have taught, of course, Calvin and Luther mm-hmm. in part because it's always very fascinating. Everyone assumes that they're going to just love Luther. He's going to be just this amazing paragon of, you know, awesome strength. Mm-hmm. And that they're going to hate Calvin or that they're going to find him kind of waspy and not very helpful. He's the punching bag for everybody, except for Calvinists. Everybody likes to rip on him. And what I usually find is students respect Luther by the end. I don't teach it in a way to disabuse them of everything. But then they, they, they get a sense of some of his anti-Semitic comments, mm-hmm. some of the ways that he attacked others, some of the ways that they wish he was a little clearer on some points. Mm-hmm. And they go, OK, I, I have some problems here. Or he's not what I expected. And then the same is true usually on the other side. They go, I expected him to be a lot more, uh, you know, he doesn't talk about predestination every page. Right. You know, he's a humanist functionally. And he's a pastor and he has a pastor's heart. That's right. And, you know, what's interesting is with the the way we read, fiction or nonfiction, you mentioned dualisms. I, I think that might be part of the issue is we have some bad habits. So on the one hand, there's the where's Waldo idea that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. That I'm going to learn everything about this. What, what are the slogans? Or with the new Kindle app, you see what other people have underlined. Right, right. And you're like, oh, I should underline that too. You know, <laughs> you, you, this is a strange social pressure. This is great. Right. Oh, I, I guess I want it. I guess that's stupid, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> you, could turn, you could turn that feature <laughs> off, by the way. I was on the plane. I started reading Eliot's, T.S. Eliot's Wasteland. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got to the famous line, I will show you fear in a handful of dust. Mm-hmm. Right in that, that opening couple of stanzas. And I thought, that's a great line. But what is he talking about? Mm-hmm. And I, I got to Googling what that what the theories are as to where he's going at the beginning. I never went back to the book for the rest of the flight. <laughs> went down the rabbit hole, the Wikipedia rabbit hole. And I went, yeah, without shame, I went to Wikipedia. Wikipedia is great. I don't, again, I don't like snobs. Wikipedia for what it does is fantastic. Yeah. Compared to an old encyclopedia that was out of date and didn't have stuff. I mean, it's yeah. awesome. Having published a book, you know the propensity of anybody to put either a, a grammatical or a punctuation error by accident, mm-hmm. or to, to write to type out the wrong date, you know, right. by a year or two. 
And you can only imagine that compounds the more pages you have. Mm-hmm. So, no, you're right. I'm not a snob either about Wikipedia. I check it all the time. I just tell my students, I don't cite it. Yeah, it's not scholarly, but it's great background. Yeah. So anyway, I went to that. Yeah, I went down the rabbit hole and I, I was like, I thought I was reading something. Oh, right. <laughs> right. But I love that. And I love, you know, finding these little weird bits. I mean, libraries function that way too. You could go to the dictionary of philosophy and look up stuff and look up other stuff. But it, it, it was much more limited than HTML hyperlinks where you can just go, go, go. I do think back to reading fiction versus nonfiction. Fiction, I just think you got to start in, you got to go, you got to chapter one and kind of read because it is narrative. It, it's this and this and this and this, but nonfiction, when it's an argument, it's much better. I think to read the introduction carefully, look at the table of contents, read the back, read the inner flap. I mean, having done books, um, those are written by the author. So what's the author saying this is really about? So really rereading that a lot, jumping ahead to the conclusion. Because again, back to my college years and my philosophy professor, he said reading closely means understanding the argument and why you should agree with it. Yeah. And it's really those two things in nonfiction. And that's really hard to do because you're having to do that as you read. Yeah. And the easiest way to do that is, is how is the argument structured? What are the chapters about? What's each chapter about? What's the argument? What's the conclusion? And if you can kind of try to get that in your head as you read it, it'll go much faster than just reading it straight through and then not sure what happened. So I read nonfiction and fiction very differently. And that's the other side of the dualism, which mm-hmm. is on the one hand, there's the figure it all out entirely. Mm-hmm. Like now you've got it, which usually is why would you even read the book at that point? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, is what you were just describing. It's this idea that you're supposed to come unprepared, just mm-hmm. simply as you are. Okay, Corral. Yeah, just let, let the book roll over you. And there's a time for that, particularly if it's a book that you're just going after for information. But maybe in reaction to the overly cribbed notes side of things, we, we end up saying, well, I just need to let my interpretation or my experience be the governing factor for this. Mm-hmm. You're never knowing, in my case with T.S. Eliot reading The Wasteland, where does this fit into his writing and his corpus and mm-hmm. his life? Yeah. What were the stories as to how it was created? What century, what decade was it right, written in? Right, Because that, yeah, that changes everything. I, I, I'm with you. And thinking back to college, I've long thought the coolest way to do things would be to take the intro level courses then take the advanced courses, and then go back and take the intro courses. Yeah. Because you don't understand the, the the survey course without the specifics, but you can't get the specifics without the survey. Same choice for a professor instructor is, do you do a textbook or do you do a lot of primary texts? Textbook will give you the survey comprehensive, and that's great, but you don't get the specifics. Do you just yeah. read Bart and other things for systematic theology, well, then you don't get the comprehensive. You're not getting everything. And you really have to have both. And But we don't have time. We really can't do that in an in a education, in a bachelor's degree. But it really is a yin-yang there. Yeah, it's like there's a, uh, I think it's Einstein, famous quote, on the far side of complexity is simplicity. Mm-hmm. So when you haven't taken a survey course on literature or theology or something, it's usually a strange thing to me that people before they've learned or know anything, think that they already know it more than they do. <laughs> you know, like, well, that's not what Luther is about. Have you read anything by Luther? Oh, well, no, but, right, you know, right. someone told me. But then you start to learn it, and then suddenly everything feels chaotic, and there's too much information. Right. And th- this line from Einstein is, once you pass beyond that, and you really begin to get a sense of it, mm-hmm. suddenly it is some more simple. You, you can then more intuitively 
know something that you've put a lot of effort into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a strange feeling. And you are left knowing how little you know. No BART expert knows everything about BART. Um, Nobody knows everything about Aquinas. You can't. I mean, they just wrote too much. Everyone is pulling up segments. You may have read everything. You may be familiar. You may be able to look it up, but you really have to zero in. And so anyone who's honest says, well, I, 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 I can't say I know everything. In fact, I had a strange conversation after finishing the PhD. My PhD was partly about Thomas Hardy. And I met this woman, we were talking, and she mentioned her famous Thomas Hardy poem. And I said, well, I don't know that one. And she just fell out. And she couldn't believe that I didn't know this poem, but I'm the one scratching my head saying, uh, he wrote almost a thousand poems and no one knows them all. I didn't say that to her because I was being polite, but I was thinking on the inside as, as someone who's been a little scholarly about Hardy, I know how much I don't know. And I'm okay with that. That's um, what education does. Right. In my case, it's, you said the date <laughs> wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's a lot of dates in history, you know, <laughs> and... and I missed it by a year. Like I just set the slightly wrong number. Or now that I've started making some videos for YouTube, it's, I can't believe a picture that's of a year slightly later was added to a story about, you're going, I'm not doing a history of the art impression here or this kind of stuff. I think in the absence of education, everyone's out to do a gotcha. Mm -hmm. And the internet encourages that. Yeah, particularly someone who's a teacher, they want to make sure that if the person isn't Pelagianly perfect, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like, mm-hmm. like I, I know everything exactly. If you don't have that, then, well, you're a complete fraud. Uh, I mean, someone on YouTube, I mispronounced Elvish in Tolkien, and the suggestion was that I should send the doctorate back. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? <laughs> okay. Yes, of course. You know, I, I have shamed my Tolkien. You know. Well, shall we wrap it up? Yep, I think that's good for now. We'll talk again later. Can't wait.